Was Dave mentioned again our mission of this church, right, to discover, disciple, deliver, that we have a desire to help people come to know the truth of the gospel and deliver that out. And, and you just saw with Hope 22, it happens within this town and with Barb, it happens all around the world. And, uh, you know, that, that mission is every believer's mission to fulfill that. And, and as a church, you know, we continue to strive uh, to do that, to glorify our Lord and Savior. And, and we're grateful for both ends of that, right? That people here need the gospel just as much as people around the world need the gospel. So thank you, Barb, and, and uh, we pray for Hope 22 as that'll be coming up in the fall. Um, I've had a chance to go out west, and uh, you know, when you go out west, the, the mountains are so much bigger out there. Uh, they just, you know, to, to stand in the Grand Canyon and, and just look out, uh, it's a thing to marvel, right? You, you stand at the top of a mountain and you, you, just, you just look at this massive piece of land. And in some places, they're so high up. I remember we were out in Colorado that, you know, it was in the middle of summer, but yet you could look at the top and you could still see the, the snowy caps. And, and here we are taking hikes and guys were coming with snowboards to go snowboarding uh, in that place. And, and then when you, you get to a top of a mountain and you look out and you just see the vastness of the horizon of God's creation, uh, it's a thing to marvel at when we talk about mountains in that sense. Um, and for a lot of people, mountains are a place of adventure, right? To, to climb them, to hike them, to scale the sides of a mountain, to, to get to the top. You know, people that, that get to the top of Mount Everest, this feeling of accomplishment that they have done that, you know, in, in some regards, it's almost like man has conquered nature uh, in that regards. Uh, and, and in a strategic sense, you know, mountains, the high points become extremely important to win battles and to win wars, right? It, it's a place of observation. It, it's a place of stronger defense or, or uh, an engaged in attack, right? Having the high ground becomes a critical piece towards winning a war. And a lot of times when we talk about mountains, we talk about them too in a symbolic sense. They are places of strength, they are places of stability, places of power when we reference a mountain. Uh, and sometimes we talk about people as being mountains, right? We talk about people who may be physical in stature, just maybe a large individual. Uh, you know, you, you think of people that are like six foot eight. Uh, we talk about people in terms of character or heart. We say that they are a mountain of a man, right? So, so we use this idea of mountains quite often. Uh, and the author today in the book of Hebrews is going to start to close this out. So we have this final warning today where he's going to reference this idea of some mountains. Uh, and then next week, we're going to kind of wrap up the book. Uh, and he's going to give some final closing remarks. But as he talks about this idea of a mountain, you know, we often hear of this idea, right? You know, what hill or what mountain are you going to die upon? Uh, and when we reference that, really what we're saying is there is a choice, there is a decision. And I want you to, to really consider where you are going to invest 
Right. Are, are you going to make a stand upon something? Uh, have you have you counted the cost? Have you have you looked at the risk that it's going to be that if you were going to take this stand, what that might mean for you moving forward in the future? OK, and, and so we reference that a lot. And so. The last 11 chapters, again, he's been trying to prove to these Jewish Christians who, again, are, are struggling amidst persecution, who are looking to go back to the old covenant, to go back to the law and say, you know, I felt more comfortable here. And he's, he's constantly going back into their history and their people, their events, their rituals and saying, guys, we, we can't go back because what we have is the ultimate in Christ. And so we finally get to chapter 11, where again, he lays that out and he says, our faith has to be grounded in Christ because that is the only saving grace that we have. It's not in what we do, but it is in who we believe in, in Jesus Christ. And in those chapters that we've looked at, again, he's, he's interwoven these warnings to the people. And we're going to see the fifth and final warning that he has. But again, these warnings, you know, come with this, this, this graciousness as he talks and this, this compassion and he wants you to know. But then he comes down with the hammer and he says, look, if you are not going to listen, there is going to be destruction for you. OK, so it's, it's very loving on one side and on the very flip side, it is a very sternness and frankness of what is going to happen to those of us that reject who Jesus Christ is. And so he's going to give one final warning to these people as he goes through the book to say, look, I know I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because you really need to understand the implications of the decision and the mountain that you are going to stand upon. Okay. So if you have your Bibles there, uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to start in, in verse 18. Um, <clears throat> So let me read 18 through 24. He says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded, that even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he's contrasting these two mountains here. We have Mount Sinai and we have Mount Zion, right? Two, two very drastically different mountains that he's speaking about. And Mount Sinai is where Moses would be given the law. And Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, uh, would be where the temple in Jerusalem would eventually be built upon. And he goes back when he starts talking about Sinai. He's actually referencing 
what we had in the book of Exodus, right? So back in the book of Exodus, again, the Israelites are brought down there. They grow in population. Pharaoh gets worried. He enslaves them. Uh, and then God basically says, and he brings Moses and he says, I'm going to free my people. And so Moses is, is pleading with Pharaoh to let these people go. The plagues happen. He lets them go. They cross through the Red Sea. The, the sea crashes upon Pharaoh's army. And then as they begin to wander the desert, God brings Moses to the Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. Now, Exodus 19, when it talks about this, I want us to hear this description that he has. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the foot of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. And after Moses has gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. They washed their clothes and he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. And so Moses went up and the Lord said, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. It's a very, uh, it's a very stark reality here. Um, again, and it's the same imagery that we see, right? This, this burning fire, this sense of gloom and doom, the, the blasting of trumpets, the warning don't come near the mountain. Don't, matter of fact, don't, don't even touch the foot of it or there is going to be death for coming to this mountain and disobeying what I have told you to. But then he goes on and he says, but you've come to a different mountain. See, you've come to Mount Zion and it's a completely different mountain. It's, it's one of the, the living God of the multitudes of angels, thousands upon angels, singing and praising God. It's a place where we get to stand before the righteous judgment of God, who, who has the ability to declare us righteous. It's a place where the perfect sacrifice has happened. And that through that perfection, we can stand and look at our God face to face to be one with him, to be able to offer sacrifices and, be, and to honor him. 
That is the place of Mount Zion. He says, he says that's, that's what we've come to, guys. Not the first mountain. No, no, we, we've come to the second one. And so as he, he, he lays out these two descriptions, he's hoping that people understand and really grasping the nature of this. Okay? But I want us to dive a little bit more deeply into what these mountains represent. Okay? As I said, Mount Sinai was a representation of the law. That's, this is, again, where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. He gets all the rules, and he goes down, and he's to tell the people what is to happen. And here... In this process, again, God is laying out this grand story, right? We have Adam and Eve and they sin. Uh, and then, then God comes and he has Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless the world through you. And then Moses comes along and he says, I'm going to free my people because I have this promise to Abraham that I will redeem my people and a savior will come. And he says, I haven't told you who the savior is yet, but I'm going to lay out the laws of how it is that you are to live in relation with me to worship me. And at the very same token, the law is laid out so that people understand the conditions of their heart and their sinfulness to understand that they need a savior. And so the law itself is not either good or bad. It's simply a set of rules. It's a set of instructions, a set of commands that you were asked to obey. And as a result of this, the law would ultimately prove to the people that they were lawbreakers. That it would ultimately prove to God his just punishment upon them for failing to uphold what he had asked them to do. And it really didn't take long for them to figure that out. Because as Moses was upon the mountain, what did they do? They broke the first two commandments. They cracked a calf out of gold and then they worshipped it. But that's the same for us. It doesn't take us very long in a day to realize that somehow we have veered off from the word of God and we have fallen into sin and we have violated his holiness. And there is just punishment for what we do wrong. And so this is what he gets at the mountain. And so what is the mountain? It's marked by fear and terror. The, the mountain is brimming with smoke and, and, and fire and the trumpets of death are blasting out that says, do, or you, do as you are told or else. And what does the law do? The law creates separation between man and God. What did he tell the people? He said, you can't come in my presence because I can't live in the presence of sin. That if you come near this mountain and you touch the foot of this mountain, you will die as a result. So you need to stay away. So he puts this fence up around the mountain. And that's what the law does. And the only way that we can come to God is when God calls us and we are purified in that regards. And the law is given in the wandering of the desert, right? And what is a desert? It's a, it's a dry hot, empty place. It's barren. And what does the law do for us? The law simply lays at our feet guilt and condemnation. It makes us empty as individuals, fearing what is to come. And in that process of that law, 
God had laid out a temporary sacrifice of animals. He said, I, I need you to bring bulls and goats and doves and rams, and I need you to sacrifice their lives for a temporary covering of atonement or forgiveness. But you're going to have to constantly keep doing it again and again, constantly coming to me, seeking that forgiveness again and again and again and again for the punishment that you are entitled to for your violation of my law. So there's a reason why Moses says, I am trembling with fear because he has given the law and all the law is doing is declaring death for man. But what about Mount Zion? Because that's where he wants people to understand this is where we need to be. Again, Zion was where they built the city of Jerusalem. They built the temple of the living God. And remember, when, well, prior to the temple, they had built the tabernacle. They had this tent where Moses would go and meet with God. And, and, and then they would have this tabernacle where, where the priests would be in there and God would dwell. And in Exodus 40, here's what it says about the tabernacle. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar. And he put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. The cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in all of the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it was lifted. And the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night and in the sight of the Israelites were in the sight of the Israelites during all of their travels. Right. So they have the tabernacle and God's glory would come and fill this place. And then David comes along and he says, wait a minute, this tabernacle is not good enough for my God. I'm going to build a temple for him, a massive temple where God can dwell and not have to move all over the place. And as he begins the work, it would then be Solomon who would then finish off this temple. And here's what it says in First Kings after he finishes it. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This magnificent temple that stood up high, overlaid with all kinds of gold, with, with the greatest craftsmen from all around. No, it wasn't the temple itself, but it was the glory of the Lord that fills the temple. This was the dwelling place of the living God amongst his people. And so Zion becomes that symbolic place, right? The, the, the tent, the tabernacle, the temple. Remember, all of those things were to point us to the ultimate father in heaven. Those were only merely shadows. They were earthly features of the heavenly one that was to come. And so unlike a barren dwelling place, what we have is a temple of the living God a vibrant city that is full of life. 
where, where, where angels are singing in joyous celebration and the saints of God's people are there worshiping our Father. And instead of standing there in fear, we get to stand there in front of God who gets to declare us righteous or that we are judged right in the eyes of God. Because now what stands in the gap is not a temporary animal sacrifice, but it was the perfect and permanent mediator, the once and for all perfect lamb of God has stood in the gap between us and God and has now brought us into his presence. And so when Abel makes that sacrifice, he makes that offering to God way back in the beginning of Genesis, and God is pleased with that. Again, he, he, he takes the blood of an animal, and that blood of that animal cries out to God, asking for justice. And now when Christ offers his blood himself, it's much different. Because unlike the once or the, the constant uh, offering of a sacrifice, Christ gives of his own life the once and for all. He says, you don't have to do this anymore. I'm going to make this a permanent sacrifice. And when he's at the cross, what does he cry out? He cries out, it is finished. And now, unlike the blood of Abel, whose that blood is crying out for justice, now Christ's blood is crying out to God and he's asking for mercy and justice and forgiveness and grace upon his people. That blood that Christ offered was so much greater than the blood that Abel offered to God. And so what do we have at Zion? We, we have a better place. Instead of fear and condemnation, what do we have? We have love and exoneration. See, Mount Sinai was just a reminder to us of how unholy and sinful we are and that we deserved death. But Mount Zion was the opposite of that where instead of death, we are offered life and we are reminded that we are made perfect by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when Christ goes to the cross, that veil is torn. That separation between us and God no longer exists. So, so instead of a mountain of exclusion, we now have a mountain of invitation to us. Where we get to live in the heavenly kingdom along with all of the other saints. And just something else to consider here in uh, 1 Corinthians, as Paul speaks to the church of Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Re remember, remember the Spirit of God that came down in the tabernacle and His glory filled the place? Remember the Spirit of God that came down into the temple, overladen with gold, but it was the glory of God that rose up? That is the same Spirit that dwells within you and I as believers. That instead of separation, God has not only invited us, but God has come to dwell within our own hearts. That is the mountain of Zion. So, those are the two mountains that he sets up. And now he comes to the warning. 
Okay, we needed to understand the nature of these two mountains to understand the full nature of what he's going to say. So now we come to verse 25 in the passage. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from, from who, him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, and I have now, has, now has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. So he says, look, guys, do not refuse him who invites you into the heavens. Do not reject him. Do not deny him. Do, do not cast him aside. Don't do it. Don't go back to what you had before. Because Christ is the better messenger and he brings the better message of hope and salvation. So, so those of you who want to go back to that, remember the wilderness? Remember that's what they did. They refused God and they made idols and they disobeyed him. And what happened to them? They died there. They never made it to the promised land because they rejected God. And the same is true for you if you choose to reject who Jesus Christ is. And then he quotes from the book of Haggai. Again, he has all these random kind of references that may not make a lot of sense to us. So who was Haggai? He was a prophet. He spoke to the Israelites after their Babylonian captivity. So remember, they, they go into, uh, they come back to the promised land. They are not really following God. God warns them and says, if you don't get it right, I'm going to send you into captivity. So they go into captivity for 70 years. God brings them back out of that. And as they come back, what Haggai notices is, he says, guys, look, you're also focused on your houses. You're so concerned about yourselves that when we look at the temple of God, it just sits there in ruins. You need to get back to work on the temple of God. That needs to be your priority. So the Israelites get back to work and they rebuild the temple. And then when the temple is rebuilt, there is this massive amount of discouragement. Because they go, the temple that we rebuilt is nowhere in grandeur than the temple that existed before. And Haggai steps in and he says, guys, let me just remind you something. This is the dwelling of God. It's not about the size of the temple. It's not about the beauty of the temple. But it's about where God is. And God is presence among his people. That is where we need to have hope. That is where we have courage. That is where we have strength, that God is dwelling among his people. That's what we need to be reminded about. And then he says, once more, I will shake not only this earth, but I will shake the heavens. So he's reminding this people of what is to come. So in a very prophetic and poetic form, this idea of shaking refers to this idea of judgment. And he says, when I judge this world, when I shake it, 
That which is shaken will be removed and that which is unshakable will remain. It's like as we have fall approaching, those leaves that are dead are going to be the first ones to blow off the tree. But the leaves that are alive are the ones that cling to the tree and remain. You know, the book of Revelation discusses the end times. We see the end times in Daniel. We see it in Zechariah. Matthew 24 talks about what the tribulation is going to look like. So, so we have a sense of what is to come one day. We have a sense of what judgment shaking is going to look like one day. And there was already a shaking once. God judged this world and he shook this earth. Matthew 27, when, when Christ goes and he gives his life on the cross, what are we told? We're, we're told that the earth shook like an earthquake. We're told that rocks split, that tombs were open, and people from the graves came alive. And we had the Roman soldier who stood there and said, surely this is the Son of God. Well, there will be a second judgment. There will be a second shaking of this world. And this time it's going to be much different. In the book of Zechariah 14, it says this. It says, the day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided up within your very walls. I will gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split into two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all of the holy ones with him. And then we see this in Revelation. I saw the heavens standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He is a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in his blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. He will rule with the iron scepter. God is going to shake this world once again, guys. He is going to come back and he is going to conquer once and for all. He's already given us life through his blood and now he's going to come and deal with these nations and deal with evil and sin once and for all. And so the author is again saying that judgment is coming. It is going to happen. I'm going to shake this world. And if you are not with Christ, you will be removed from this world. If you are not standing upon the mountain of Zion then there will be condemnation for you. And so he's making it terribly clear here, guys. He says, you have a mountain to stand on. You have a choice to make in this world. You can stand upon Mount Zion, one that is one of fear and death, 
Or you can stand upon Mount Zion, which is one of love and freedom and life, where we are declared innocent of our sins. And he says, please, make the right choice. Don't go back. And if I could use his own words that he has from chapter 3. Remember in chapter 3, he says, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts to the Lord. Don't reject him. Don't deny him. Don't let it drift by you. Don't just play the role of Christian. Give your life over to Christ. And if we choose to give our lives to Christ, if we have already done so, then we are free to read these last two verses of this section. What does it say in verse 28? If we have chosen to stand upon Mount Zion, if we have chosen to stand upon Christ, here is what we get to read. Therefore, therefore, because we have done that, because we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God, if we're going to stand upon Zion, let us worship him. Let us praise him because we know he's coming back, but he's coming back for us to free us once and for all. We understand the power of God, but we also understand his love and forgiveness. And both of them are wrapped around us as his children. What a joyous place to be, to know that nothing in this world can harm us. We have a God that loves us sacrificially, a God that loves us unconditionally. And all we have to do is put our faith in him and we are his forever. So let us worship God for that because not one of us deserves it, but he gives it to us. So the psalmist says this in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so let the Lord surround his people both now and forevermore. We trust in Jesus. We are like Mount Zion. So let us worship Christ because Christ is our mountain that we will die on. Let's pray. Lord, it's... Uh, what a joy, what a joy it is, Lord, to know that again, Lord, that there is, there, is, there is condemnation for our unrighteousness. But Lord, you covered over that. Lord, you gave us life. You've given us freedom. Lord, we are your chosen people and you have said to us, I am, I am your father and I will always love and care and protect you. And Lord, again, my heart continues as the plea of this passage is that those who have not yet fully embraced Christ, who stand on the fence wondering where to go, those who may hear this message and know nothing about Jesus would be piqued with interest that, that your spirit would cause them to seek you out, that we would die upon the mountain of Zion that is you, Lord. 
And as a result, we don't have to fear what this world has to offer, what this world challenges us with. Because, Lord, we know that one day you will return and you will set this world right. And so for that, we praise you. Sinners that are saved by grace, by a father who loves unconditionally and sacrificially. Amen.